different. No one understood him. You ready for it, boy? It's time to take your medicine. Thank you, sir. No one could control him. Go inside, honey. But now, it's a new beginning. The beginning of the end for Freddy. Every town has an Elm Street. Screaming while the bus is in motion. It's your mind you'll go for. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. To hit him with everything we've got. Now I'm playing with power. We're in Twin Peaks here. It's gotta be me and him. You wanna live? Peggy, what's up? What's with kids today, huh? Freddy's dead. The final nightmare. Great graphics. They saved the best for last. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all horror movie franchises. One movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, back once again with my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling tonight? I'm excited. I, I love these episodes because uh, I'm just notoriously not a fan of this movie. But like, like I said, I think I posted on Twitter. I love episodes like this or, uh, you know, Blair Witch 2 or episodes on films that I just don't really like because I kind of find a new appreciation for them by talking to people that do like them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm kind of more excited about this one than the other ones. So- Okay, excellent. So I think it's going to be three on one tonight. I think it's going to be like a handicap match going on here (laughs) right now. So I think we have some uh, real fans of it, and I'm quite fond of this as well. Um, So let us introduce our guest tonight. Uh, First up, we have from the websites Grumpire, Daily Grindhouse, and The Daily Dead. Uh, We have Nathan Smith. Nathan, what's going on? No, that's... Going great tonight, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. Happy to have you on, my friend. Um, And also we have 
uh, the author of the books, The Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. And also out, uh, out now and available everywhere is The World of It, which covers the um, background, set pieces, and making of the 2015 and 2018. Did I get the years right? No, that's not right. No, 2017. Not even close. Wow. <laughs> the 1990 miniseries. Um, my bad. But the world of it, we have Elise Wax. Hi. Thanks How for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, so before we get into both, of, before we get into this movie here a little bit, um, I was curious because I'm reading this book right now, the Friday the 13th, uh, the series book right now. <laughs> it is a wonderful read. By the way, I started with Thank the interview you. with Frank Mancuso Jr. in the back of it, mm -hmm. and then I'm kind of like going forward from there. Um, and I know you talk about this in the intro to the book a bit, but what was it that made you say like, we need a book just on um, the Friday the 13th, the series, which is this almost, I don't want to say little known, because it was really, I remember like growing up watching this in Freddy's Dead on Friday nights, but it doesn't seem to be quite as remembered as one would think overall. Like what made you want to write a book on this series? Um, I first saw it when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I was flipping through, for some reason in Los Angeles, it aired at 11 a.m. on Saturday mornings. That's why I don't know why. But uh, I was 10 years old and I was flipping around looking for cartoons and I came across an episode and there was just boils, postulating and, and bleeding and it was so gross and I was so fascinated and that was it I was so obsessed with the show and it was an obsession that lingered for years and years and years and years they got away with so much on that show I mean it was like I went back and watched a few episodes like a year ago and I still I need to pony up and just buy the three um the three seasons on DVD at some point. I just need to like actually spend the money and do that. Um, but like these movies would be like a hard art in theaters. And, and it was at least yeah. the show, like they got away with a ton um, on this. So to hear like it was on at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, like right after like Captain Caveman and Scooby-Doo and like the Muppet Babies around that time too. Like you would have gone like straight from like Nanny and the Muppet Babies to like somebody um, convincing someone to like brutally murder someone over like a cosmetic mirror. Like just, yeah, it warms my heart. So. Another thing uh, about that book in particular, and you know, I'm a huge fan of Elisa's book, uh, Curious Goods, uh, is because like it is most definitely the Bible on that mm -hmm. series. Mm -hmm. Like it does, it covers every single episode in depth. And as someone who is a massive fan of Adam Agoyan, the filmmaker, like you don't really get to read much about like his early work. You know, like mm -hmm. like and to have like parts of like the episodes that he did go into de in detail about like just those episodes in general like it, it's such a good read it, and <laughs> it really is oh i'm sorry those opening me. credit no 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 sorry and those just to, to go back everybody uh always i hear the stories about how it was always on early for everybody else but for me it was it was always like super late at night yeah and those mm -hmm. opening credits to the series friday the 13th I mean, scared the bejesus out of me. Yep. I mean, it was the most frightening shit I'd seen on TV. The I think for me, it was Friday nights 
10 o'clock at night was Freddy's Dead, and then 11 o'clock was uh, Friday the 13th, the series, back to back. And it was like junior high school me, you know, just absolutely ate that stuff up alive, like did not miss that for the world. Um, and Nathan, you were saying before, aside from your, the website writing you've done, you were teasing me by saying you were the star of the houses that October built uh, and made an appearance. Where did you appear in that movie? Uh, so I'm at the very, very end of the movie. So like the last scene before mm -hmm. the credits hit mm -hmm. uh, is an interview that I did when I was uh, working as a haunted house worker mm -hmm. uh, in my old hometown. And so I'm at the very end of the movie, I'm being interviewed. I had no idea. I had one of my old buddies who was there the night that I filmed for that. And he was like, you know, you're in a movie. And it, it just shocked me. So that's like my little stupid claim to fame. So do they, just, awesome. do they just pull that footage and just not give any credit for it? Uh, I never even, I mean, I signed, I mean, you know, I signed my waiver the night that they okay. filmed because I was in makeup. I was actually getting ready for makeup and ah, everybody okay. knows I don't know how to okay. shut up. They sent me mm -hmm. out there to, to stump for the, the house and, mm -hmm. uh, so you were the History dude being interviewed. Boring. You were the dude being interviewed, not the interviewee. No, no, no. Yeah, I was the dude being interviewed. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. if it, I if I remember correctly, you're like, yeah, I just want to go out and like take all my aggression out and murder folks. All right, me. Are we in a better place tonight, or are we gonna? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the trail of hobos up to my room is uh, is starting to stink a little. Excellent. Yeah, I just watched that with my daughter, and that like really freaked her the fuck out. We did a Q&A with like literally everyone in that cast for Telluride Horror Show in 2014. And it was one of the most fun. Like they made us get off the stage after an hour because there were other <laughs> movies we had to show. Like it was packed. Everyone stayed. We had one dude ask like how long you can bury someone before... Um, they would die basically. And we told him <laughs> that he was not allowed to come drinking with us at the after party. Um, so yeah. All right, man, that's, that's fantastic. So if you're looking to see uh, Nathan, like really weird people out, definitely go to the end of the houses, which is a great movie, by the way, like one of my favorite yeah. kind of like haunted attraction found footage movies. All right. But we are not here to talk about those things tonight as as you might not have guessed, because here I am rambling on like six minutes in, we are here to bury the dead. We are here to say goodbye, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to one Freddy Krueger with 1991's Freddy's Dead. And I'll put it to the people. Um, Elise, what was your first experience with Freddy's Dead? When did you first run into this? I first saw it in theaters. I was 11 years old and mm -hmm. I remember begging my mother for weeks to take me to see mm -hmm. it. And she finally did. And um, it was just, it was, I, I think it may have been my first time seeing a three theatrical 3D movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember loving it so much. And when I rewatched it, I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed it still. Mm -hmm. How was the 3D in theaters? Because it's the old school red and green, like what you would get like from the 1950s, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't remember specifically. I remember mm -hmm. it being very good. I don't see um, a lot of like the new 
newfangled uh, mm-hmm. 3D very well with the with the polarized glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, my brain doesn't process that very well. So I remember mm-hmm. seeing it and being like, whoa, that's cool, you yeah. know? Yeah, the, the 3D was actually like really good for this. I, I remember mm-hmm. going and yeah. seeing it. And I remember, you know, I, I think I was 11 too. And I, I, I loved it. I mean, I, I loved it almost as much as the fact that the side of the glasses said House Party 3. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Got to recycle, man. Even right. new line <laughs> cinema, always ahead of the curve, recycling even back in the early 90s. And Nathan, how about yourself, man? Uh, so my first introduction to it uh, was when it came out on videotape. Um, I rented it and Problem Child 2 on the same night. And the, the, my mom presented me. She's like, look, we watch this now while it's daylight outside. You're probably going to fare better whenever you have your nightmares later. <laughs> and uh, so we did. And uh, no, it didn't work because it, it, it scared the hell out of me. I was, like I said, I was six. Um, but no, I never got to see it theatrically, which is a big bummer. But it was my first new Freddy, so okay, it, you know, so to my heart. So that was my next question: was like, how familiar were you both like with the Elm Street series before seeing Freddy's Dead? I know I had seen Number Five because that was my first ever horror film, and I saw it in secret at a friend's house, and I was terrified to see it because. I thought it would scare me, but mm-hmm. instead I found it hilarious and fell in love with Freddy Krueger. Um, so I know I had seen, I think I had probably seen, by the time I saw Freddy's Dead, I had probably seen all of them, but I don't remember exactly. Okay. It's funny because so many people say what you just did, where they saw their first Elm Street movie in secret. Like it was something that they weren't supposed to watch that felt either felt dirty or they just weren't allowed. Like for me, it was Freddy's revenge. Um, and I remember like watching it in my friend's finished basement and we literally like hid behind the sofa to watch the movie. Cause it scared us like so badly at the time. Like, and at that, an age, we're not picking up any of the subtext of the movie, just like <laughs> absolutely freaked out that this like burned up dude is like, ripping his skull off to show his brain and popping out of people's chests. Like that freaked us out. We weren't seeing that anywhere. So Jerry, you said you saw this in theaters and it mm-hmm. just did, did it when you were like 11 years old, were you um, more willing to give this a shot and like have some fun with it? Or was back then was even Jerry like, this is not the serious tone I prefer in my horror movies. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? No, I actually was that kind of kid. Uh, no, but like on, when I saw it in the theater, I was actually quite fond of it. Like I laughed my ass off because mm-hmm. I, I found it incredibly funny. I mean, even at that age, I think I still had a couple like small nitpicks that I still have. You know, I I, I love being scared by by the the kind of like more uh, the the more serious uh, entries in the series. Like I think the first film, the second film. Uh, you know, those, those are pretty terrifying to me, even still, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm 40 now and yeah, but like, even as a kid seeing it in the theater, like it was a lot of fun, but I, I remember thinking like, like, where did like, can scared go in this movie? You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, at 11 years old, you just kind of want to have fun. You know, I wasn't looking for like an A24 movie when I was 11, <laughs> you know, but at at the same time, like it did kind of like weird me out a little bit being like, 
this is so far from like the stuff that would keep me up at night, you know, in the early on sequels. Right. I hear you. And I know for me, like I said last week that I didn't remember, I thought dream child I might've seen for the first time when I got like the DVD box set. I know for a fact, like I did not see Freddy's dead until I got the DVD box set. Oh, wow. And I think even then it would have been like, a good while like i honestly think that like just based on the reputation of this movie um i would have done like one two three and four in a heavy rotation um occasionally have done new nightmare and kind of left like five and six to the side um which was you know my mistake basically because even though i don't necessarily love part five it's still a lot of fun and i think like freddy's dead is a hell of a lot of fun and as weird as this will sound, given how far removed it is from the tone of the first two movies, like an appropriate capper to the, what I would say, like the end of the original series comes with Freddy's Dead, like this whole timeline. It's like, like with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you have basically like 700 different timelines and none of them make any sense. And somehow like... Um, God, what is it? Alexandra Dardario is playing a 40-something-year-old in Texas Chainsaw 3D. Um, you know, this is like the end of the original Elm Street's um, timeline right here. Yeah, I mean, we never got the Illuminati controlling Freddy like we did with Leatherface. Which, <laughs> it's a shame, which is really a shame. So, um, So why was this the end of the series? Why did New Line decide to pull the plug um, on really what was like a major cash cow for these guys at the time like up until dream child every single elm street made more money than the previous one um who would like to uh, espouse on that for a few moments um i'll go for it if sure. i remember correctly uh, dream child didn't do very well theatrically um and i think that new line just gave up too quickly yeah but i think it's interesting that they said freddy's dead and more or less actually kept with it you know other than a couple other than the new nightmare and freddy versus jason they Mm -hmm. didn't they didn't you know bring him back randomly yeah which is kind of impressive yeah I mean, you're right, because after this, there are only three Elm Street movies. And one of them is like a meta commentary that is like commentating on the series, like completely out of that timeline. One of them is a reboot. And one of them is the movie that like 10-year-olds had been asking for since 1984. So you've got to have that. I mean, compare that with like the final chapter which after that you have five, six, seven, eight, Jason goes to hell, Jason X, Freddy versus Jason. So eight movies after the final chapter. (laughs) Um, It's just, yeah, you're right. Like new line. And it possibly might be that like by this new line is then getting into things like they do the mask, for example, they do teenage ninja mutant turtles. So all of a sudden they have like these massive hits on their hands. So they don't necessarily need to do the Elm Street movies anymore. That and I mean, I think every major horror franchise ran into exactly what New Line did with Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, 
there were nine Halloween sequels after they killed off Michael Myers in two. You know what I mean? You know, and I, I think every every studio came to a point where they're like, this thing that once made us a lot of money is kind of starting to diminish a little bit mm-hmm. financially. Maybe we should just cut our losses, wrap it up, and and look elsewhere. And I, I think with A Nightmare on Elm Street, I mean, as much as I don't really care for this movie, I think that was such a poor idea. Because I, I think, you know, as much as Halloween will forever be the love of my life, like I love Halloween more than I love my kids on some days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as much as I love that in the Friday 13th series, like the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I see like just an infinite amount of potential for sequels, yep. you know? And like we said a couple episodes ago, you know, everyone's like, get, everyone gets pissed about the idea of recasting Freddy. And I agree with them. I think Robert England is basically the only person that could really play that role. But the idea of nightmares and what they mean to each person can change from movie to movie. So, I mean, the possibilities are endless, right? you know? And like, I, I, you know, I, I do think that they kind of jumped the gun with, with calling it quits on this one, you know, like uh, Friday 13th did that with Jason goes to hell, you know, Halloween did that multiple times, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah you know, but... and... oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say that um, I kind of respect them for for just letting it go because I mean I love I'm with I'm with you Jerry I love Halloween like that is my go to um, uh, franchise but with all of the different reboots and remakes and re reboots mm-hmm. it's very confusing yeah and I'm mm-hmm. kind of tired. I'm getting too old for this. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> this is a you're nice. The, you're the Murtaugh. You're the Murtaugh of Halloween fans. Yeah, exactly. This is a nice through line from parts one to six, and then everything else is standalone. So it's not too hard to. And none of the movies are asking you to completely forget about what came before it. So, you know, yeah. that's not a bad thing. Nathan, you wanted to jump in there, my friend. Yeah, you know, what I was thinking about is, is it could be an integrity thing, too. Because, I mean, if we're making the biggest comparison to, to Friday the 13th, right? We all, we've read the, we've read the Crystal Lake Memories. We know that Paramount really saw it only as, as money, mm-hmm. the Friday the 13th series. So the only people who really put any type of care into it would be the, the people who were writing the films on, on that granular level. And even Frank Mancuso was, you know, kind of the, the guy to carry the whole thing through so with new line i think because freddie specifically was their icon in a sense that maybe they worried okay well he is becoming too much you know of a, of a, a comedian so maybe we ought to just nip this in the bud while we can where paramount just kept well i guess after jason takes manhattan it went to new line too but paramount just said it's not making us money we're washing our hands clean. We've right. got internal affairs on the horizon. We've got Oscar winning movies. So New Line just said, you know, fuck it. If Freddy's not scary anymore, then maybe we should call it quits, mm-hmm. even though the money could potentially be there. And this I, is I think oh, and this is a time when parents groups are like really overzealously trying to police mm. the media that kids can see. And all of a sudden like violent horror movie series that center around like 
you know, a burned up child murderer, wink, wink, that may or may not be a pedophile. Um, that is going to tend to maybe draw some scrutiny where if you're a company that is starting to aim for bigger things that you may not want to have at that point. And when you look at like horror in the early 90s, there is definitely a move away for a time of the from the ultra gory, special effects driven franchise horror um, that had become so popular. And I don't want to say that it gets silly or that there was no great horror, but you see things like Gremlins 2, where it becomes like kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge of, you know, what had come before. You see like the Ghoulies movies, you start to see horror be a lot more loose and a lot more fun overall. And if you want serious horror, then you're getting what we're now calling psychological thrillers like 1990 you see misery come out and kathy bates wins an oscar for her portrayal um as misery and i can't think of her last name now no she didn't play misery misery was any character any Wilkes. thank you yeah my god um misery chastain i think actually but thank you so much the, the character Yep. You have like Silence of the Lambs comes out like a year after that and absolutely destroys at the box office and then takes home like best picture, best screenplay, best actor, best actress, like something that like has not been replicated by a horror film since. Um, you have like Martin Scorsese dip his toes into like genre fare with his remake of Cape Fear. And uh, you have like Robert De Niro once again transforming his body for like the third time in a decade basically uh, to play Max Cady. So you have these like more, I don't want to say, well, yes, serious minded fair that if this was 2020, there would be like 500 tweet threads about whether or not their horror movies are like elevated genre fair and everybody would (laughs) fucking want to gouge out their eyes rather than reset. oh i i so. definitely think cape fear is death wave is de- definitely what <laughs> death wave i was joking i oh boy i love cape fear man that movie rules. no it's, it's wonderful i just wanted to make a death wave joke i will uh, absolutely <laughs> fight anyone that says a bad word about martin scorsese no it's 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 funny because you have all these movies like science of the lambs cape fear and all that stuff and like when we come to like the slasher films that we that that came around around came out around the time, like we we have Freddy flying on a broom, <laughs> right? You know? How do you compete with that? I mean, really, like how do you compete? Uh, is, kids, remember the nineteen thirties? Yeah, Here you go. Is, is Freddy's Dead elevated horror because scenes take place five thousand feet above the ground? Oh womp, Jesus! Womp womp womp. Um, so dad jokes i'm a dad and i have the jokes um (laughs) so this movie was almost made like in a real you know in terms of like what they were planning on doing when they knew it was the final one like peter jackson almost gets this movie which would have been really interesting so he comes off his debut bad taste and he's given a shot to write this movie um his take centers on like a freddy that no longer has the power to scare kids um matter of fact like kids from elm street would actually want to go to sleep and go into the dream world just so they could beat the crap out of freddy which is really it's kind of sad like it's like old man freddy krueger i mean it's kind of like beating up like crazy ralph from the friday the 13th series it sounds like a little bit 
Um, and it's not until Freddy accidentally kills one of the bullies that he starts getting his mojo back. Um, I haven't read this script. I think that it's like out there somewhere to download and read. And from, but from what I understand, like it does play like a commentary on exactly how watered down um, the character in the series had become compared to Wes Craven's movie and uh, the follow-up Freddy's Revenge. I have looked for that script for so long because I've mm-hmm. always wanted to read it. Like, I, I also think it's really important when we talk about the Peter Jackson shot at it. Like, New Line's Mark Ordesky uh, was a producer at New Line, and that guy really just championed the hell out of not only horror, but Peter Jackson in general. Like, he was the one that really pushed for Peter Jackson and, and Peter Jackson's uh, uh, writing partner at the time, Danny Moeller, and they they were the two that wrote that script. You know, they had written Meet the Feebles together, and Ordesky just really wanted Jackson over at New Line. So they offered him so many things. I mean, Texas Chainsaw 3 was another one, you know, uh, that, this movie. And, you know, it was, it was Ordesky really pushing for Jackson that actually brought Peter Jackson into New Line with Lord of the Rings, which Mark Ordesky executive produced. So, I mean, like, they had been trying for a long time to get him there. And it's crazy that... He goes from maybe or possibly doing like what ended up being Freddy's Dead to like Lord of the Rings, which is like massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a series that no one thought could ever get made. And what he does with it is like pretty incredible overall. Like after Frighteners um, and after, you know, like his early work, like Beat the Feebles and Bad Taste, who would think that he would become that? that director like who knew he had it in him so especially after king kong that was such a shit show <laughs> i don't ha- i don't hate it i don't hate his king kong i can't watch uh-huh. his hobbit movies because i just can't see how you stretch like a 200 page book into a trilogy but eh, yeah. you know it's you know <laughs> it is what it yeah, is yeah but Ed, uh, you know honestly though in his defense and i'm not a fan of the hobbit movies either but in his defense like, I mean, that book does spend two pages talking about the texture of a tree. So. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. So this movie does go to Rachel Talalay, who had been with New Line Cinema since really since its early days and had done a lot of work with uh, John Waters and had been kind of like Robert uh, Bob Shea's like right hand woman for like years. Like she was the person on the first Elm Street that would basically tell Wes Craven like whether or not that there was the money to get stuff that he wanted to get done actually done like she had a lot of say in that and i think wes craven on the down low like kind of accused her of being a spy for bob shea like he definitely didn't trust her and if you read the never sleep again book um by tommy hudson like you know and it's not that he doesn't like her but he's kind of like yeah i thought like she was kind of like a studio mole that was in you know out there to kind of like report back to the teacher if i was getting that line um but she had done like a ton of work for the series on parts one through four. Um, she was really like, she talks uh, in interviews about like part three and the work that they had to do. Like, she's like, we were able to find locations and equipment and people that were able to make this movie that really should have been made for like 50 million, like make it for like three or 4 million. And it's not until part five where she takes a break for a movie just because she's so burned out on 
on doing the Elm Street movie. She takes a break and uh, produces Crybaby for John Waters starring Johnny Depp. And then when she hears Freddy's Dead, it's going to be the last movie. She's like, I really want a chance to direct this one. Uh, and she's given that opportunity to do it by Bob Shea, basically because of all the work uh, she had in like steering this series from day one. She's went on to have such a great career. I mean, Tank Girl's beloved, and she's done mm-hmm. such a, a a lot of work with Doctor Who, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I know she's like doing like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She's done work on Sherlock. Uh, mm-hmm. We were trying to get her for um, an interview for our series for behind the scenes folks, and today we got a hard no from her agent. So. <laughs> Hard at work. Did you really like quickly though? Did you get my uh, message about Kyle Gellner? Is he? When are we doing that? <laughs> he, he messaged me today because we're doing. I'm, I'm sure anyone that's listening to the show already knows it because I won't shut up about it. But we're doing a separate episode uh, with Elm Street alumni talking about their experiences, and Kyle Gellner is going to come on to talk about the remake. And he assured me that he's going to slam it more than we do. Oh, wow. uh, you know, like he said. Basically, he sent me a message today, and he's like, hey, I haven't forgotten. I still want to do it. Uh, he's like, uh, it's just been crazy. The house we were going to move into literally burned down because of the fire. Oh, Jesus. He's oh, like that. And on the 21st, man. I have to go fly to film Scream 5. So I'm going to have a lot of time to myself. You know, we'll do it. So he's excited. So Excellent. Yeah. Tell Lay said no, but Kyle Gellner yeah. said talk remake. You can have tell Gellner that he can tell um, David or Kent he's a coward for not coming to talk to us <laughs> about his new wrestling documentary. And I will absolutely cut a scathing promo on David Arquette and challenge him to like a death match. You know, I have no problem doing that. No, nothing but love for David Arquette. I adore him. So Yeah, the documentary is amazing. It, I still need to watch it. But uh, yeah, I mean, go on. No, no, go go for it. Go for it. I was just going to say, it's just a, it's a bummer that, you know, Rachel Talley hasn't gotten the shot that she really, really deserves. I mean, she should have been directing movies, many movies after Tank Girl. And yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, Christ, she's, you know, worked on one of my favorite slashers, uh, The House on Sorority Row. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just all the shit that she's done. It's just... It's just a crying shame, but I think she has a movie coming out this year or something for Netflix. She does. Yep. And I think she's done a lot of work with Netflix and there's like um, some sort of like babysitter murder type thing. Like it's like a teen girl, like babysitter murder. It's not the babysitter, the movie that just came out, but I had, God, I do not remember what the name of it is off the top of my head. But like, you know, I think it's one of those things where like, Maybe she, she's not like the household name that we think that she should be, but she has worked in this industry really steady for like 30, 40 years now. And especially now, like when you see some of the work that she's been able to produce and direct on the small screen, um, and there is more and more with television and with episodic storytelling, there's that kind of blurring of the lines between like what's cinema versus what's television um, and she's had her hands in some of like the best shows. So oh, that, and I mean, there are so many excellent directors that are really carving such unique paths for themselves in television. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Dahl, Keith Gordon, Ernest Dickerson, Rachel Talalay. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just kicking ass with TV. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like, I think that's a legacy that, that I mean, that I'd be proud of. Yeah. And frankly, I think that television, it, probably pays more 
and there's a little less stress because you just come in and you do your your shot and you don't have to worry about a lot of these stuff that you have to worry about on a feature mm-hmm. i don't know i've always been a big television person yeah. myself so yep agreed so moving in now let's let's dive into the movie itself right now here and i guess jerry my question is for you because uh, you're like on the record of saying like yeah you're not the biggest fan of this and it's kind of rooted in the tone what is it about like the tone of this movie that you would say like just doesn't work for you as much as some of the other films i think for me it's the fact that the fear has gone for me you know I'm, I'm totally down with with the more like adventurous sequels in in series i mean you know, no disrespect to fans, but I don't think I'll ever get on board with Paul Rudd stopping Michael Myers with magical runes. But I, <laughs> I appreciate the fact that it exists. Kind of like Jason Goes to Hell. Not a fan, but I appreciate the hell out of the fact mm-hmm. that, like, they had the balls to do that. This one, like, you know, I, I, I see, that's the thing. I don't want to slam this movie because, like, I, I try to come from more of a positive place. But that mm-hmm. being said, like, like I said, the danger's gone. Freddy's not scary at all. Mm-hmm. And this film, to me, feels closer to, like, a Zucker Brothers movie. You know, like, I, I understand that they're kind of, like, doing a send-up of the series and going more of a comical, like, look at what the series was. But it comes off kind of as a parody of an Elm Street film to me. And, like, for a movie that's supposed to be, like, the one, like, here, you know, here's how we go out, like, it's just an interesting choice to me that just didn't land for me. And I, I also think, like, the humor and the camp in, in Freddy's Dead, like, it, it's too much for me at times. Like, you know, like, Divine was supposed to play the woman sitting next to John in the airplane. You know, Tom and Roseanne's in the movie. There's constant references to Twin Peaks. Alice Cooper is Freddy's stepdad. Like, it almost seems, sounds like an SNL skit to me at times, you know? Like, I appreciate it, but it's just, it's so far removed from everything I love about the series. Mm-hmm. See, I always felt, and this might just be because I learned early on that I don't have an actual scare response. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought that Freddie was funny in general, even in the first one, you know, he was, he was still scary, but um, I always thought that he was kind of a wisecracking horror villain. So mm-hmm. to me, it didn't seem like a real big jump. I, I thought too, like by this point, Freddie couldn't be scary anymore just because he was so overexposed. You have five movies, you have like 45 episodes of TV. He's got records. He's on lunch boxes. He's got MTV specials. He's Marvel, in a Fat Boys video. <laughs> he's in a Fat Boys video. Will Smith, like DJ Jazzy Jeff does a song about you know, the fresh friend. Like if you want like the most like, Dawkins is <laughs> doing coke off the Freddy glove. No, but I mean, if you want to think the most like safe, absolutely like safe pop rap music, like you get DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh <laughs> Prince at this time, right? Like there is like, talk about no danger. There is no danger in that whatsoever, you know? Um, he's on giant posters, like, and there's no mystery in the character. And by this time, like Renny Harlan said it, like by part four, Freddie is the star of the show and he's the reason why people are coming to the movies. And I think like the diminishing returns you see when franchises do that, like when Friday the 13th becomes like Kane Hodder is Jason just like in the bulk of the movie, like those movies 
aren't scary and like the audiences don't really turn up for them. You know, same thing with Halloween, like when it's all about Michael Myers and he becomes like super Michael, like (laughs) each movie has the diminishing returns from four to five to six. Um, That that and like there there are a couple small things. I guess they're not small to me. Uh, but there are a couple things about the movie that even as a kid kind of just rubbed me wrong the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You know, as someone, as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, like, I, I, you know, I know other people maybe took it like they were addressing uh, molestation and stuff. You know, I, I've read a lot of really good, like, think pieces about that, actually, about this movie. But for me, as a survivor of that, it felt more like a plot device, kind of like Carlos and his disability it felt more like a plot device instead of, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Like Carlos death scenes imaginative and cool, but I, I couldn't imagine being like someone who actually had that disability saying like, Oh, you know what I mean? Like just kind of like I did as a kid seeing the stuff about the molestation stuff. Like I remember being in the theater and that thing was just like, okay, I kind of feel like I'm being made fun of a little bit, you know, like little small things like that, I think. Okay, um, that's int- I just I didn't see I, I know the character you're referring to, but I didn't see how they were making fun of her in that. I thought- no, I, I don't mean I don't really mean making fun of her per se. I'm just saying like it's such an interesting thing to address, yeah. but like it, it just comes off kind of like grimy to me. Do you like think the it, the portrayal? Did it feel out of place compared to like where the rest? Because the rest of the series, oh, totally. Is- it's so much about like suburban teen kids and this was like such a left field turn like all of a sudden you have this movie about like these kids that are basically in like a halfway home well that and i mean earlier on in the series you get very different personalities for kids i mean dream master i mean those set of friends are they couldn't be more different from each other but it works in this one, it almost feels like each character's a caricature. You know, you have you have the girl, you know, who doesn't trust anyone because she was molested. You know, you have the handicapped kid who, it, it almost seems like they wrote like, oh, you know what, let's write these caricatures of what kids would be dealing with. But they never mm-hmm. quite address those things, I think. they ne- it's, it's almost like to set it up for uh, set pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, like Carlos is only... They only talk about Carlos's disability because they want to blow up his head from his hearing aid. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's a good point. I think that's a lot of the issue is when they started just reverse engineering it. I mean, mm-hmm. they had to get the video game in thing in with Spencer. So there he is playing one of those terrible Tiger Electronics games from the 90s. And, you know, the, the thing, though, that I like about Tracy's character is that, or, or well, at least what Mike was talking about was how this isn't, this isn't Springwood, Ohio. Springwood, Ohio, you know, it's a, a rich community, suburban, you know, kids. And then all of a sudden, now we're in wherever Freddy's Dead takes place. It says Central City on the cops' uh, 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 uniforms. So I, I just, I think it's interesting that this ushers in the new era. This is now the 90s. And the 90s is the big, you know, this is more when we're focused on the gritty stuff, like RoboCop 2 started bringing in the drug stuff. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles also kind of felt very much like an inner city type situation. So that's why I think the grittiness and, and giving these teens the real problems as opposed to 
I don't know the stuff that they worried about in the in the previous sequels. No, I, I could totally see that. And what's interesting, and it's funny that you say uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is one thing I've laughed about this in the past actually when talking about Ninja Turtles and this movie. Which so it's it's interesting that you make that comparison because it's still weird to me that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a grittier film than Freddy's Dead. <laughs> Absolutely, that whole movie just feels like. It feels like it's the stuff line like, was coming like, out in the eighties. It, it feels like Walter Hill directed it. <laughs> yes, very much so. But I think you know, going back to part five, like teen pregnancy, that's kind of a heady thing. You know, like that's kind of like not your typical like slasher movie fare. Like you know, we have like a character that is pregnant and comp- contemplating whether or not they should you know terminate the pregnancy and, you know on top of that that she's going to be like raising the child as a single mom mm-hmm. and they give it like all of like 30 seconds of consideration and then they move on from it and then you have like demon baby freddy you know See, they you have like they... freddy yelling like it's mm-hmm. a boy and like they're not really treating that i mean do you like if you know if you were a single teen mom, would you feel like you were insulted by that movie? Or would you- I think for me, the tone is what does it. Mm-hmm. I, like if they had these in Freddy's Dead and it was somewhat as serious in tone as the dream child was, it probably wouldn't bother me. But the fact that you're talking about molestation and disability and Freddy's flying like a witch and, you know, <laughs> there's like like basically like Looney Tunes-esque humor involved. Like no. it seems like it, it kind of like feels like two different tones in one to me. But how much different is like Super Freddy versus like- Oh, that that's out of place like, too. You know what I mean? Like it's like- No, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's silly as fuck, yeah. The, the tone is like the same in both movies. Like they're, I think like Dream Child wants to be this dark Gothic movie, but then it's like, absolutely silly like you have freddie turning into a motorcycle saying don't dream and drive and then you have um super freddie you know it's so it's not <laughs> and then you have like again you have freddie krueger as like a baby um going around so it's not like you know we're not talking about like the um I just lost track of like what movie I was going to reference. So I have to insert, like we're not talking about insert a 24 fair here with like dream child either. You know, I think by that point, like the cat's out of the bag, like it's a silly, the franchise is, is silly. And what Freddie's dead has done is just like embrace that silliness at this point. Like, well, that said, I, I do think there are things that kind of, that it Freddie's dead does do a good job of tackling. I love Maggie and also Yafet Koto's characters. Mm-hmm. You know, I love them because like those are two characters that above all want to help these kids. You know, like like mm-hmm. usually you get adults in the Elm Street series and the adults are the most despicable pieces of shit in in each film. You know, like like Tuesday Night's character, like her mom is such an awful character in mm-hmm. in you know in Dream Master and, and uh, Dream Warriors. Where Maggie and, uh, I forget Yafet Koto's character's name. Doc. But, Doc. Yeah, Doc. yeah. Yeah, just call him Doc. <laughs> Such a simple thing to forget. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love those characters. Like anytime they're on screen, it's just like, okay, this is a movie I can get on board. But I think it's just some of the choices that, that's made. Like, you know, Spencer's kind of death scene just... I mean, even at 11, I was just like, what is going on here? I like that Yafo Koto's character, like, 
20 years after Alien is still like, we're not getting paid enough for this. <laughs> like, it really all comes back down to like, we're not paid enough for this shit. So, <laughs> except this time he gets to live, thankfully. So, yeah. Nathan, well, like, I, uh, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like, Dave, you had like a kind of like a, a little bit like different outlook. I'm just looking over your notes here on the tone of the movie overall, like, you know, and how it tackled those things. And I'm kind of interested in hearing that. So um, I will agree that Freddy, at the, I mean, well, when I was a kid, I saw this as scary as hell to me. I mean, I was at that age where everything frightened me. But now that I get older, you know, of, of course you look at it as, no, Freddy's not really particularly menacing. He's not, um, he's not even really funny. I mean, there's not really anything in here that, that he says that's, I mean, no screaming while the bus is in motion. Good Lord. That's a real don't make me tap the sign thing. Um, but no, I, I'd say that there are certain scenes, if you think about the implication of it, like the final scene with him and Lisa Zane in the basement. I think that's where he's most menacing. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. When he says, you know, I didn't need a glove to kill your mother and I don't need one to kill you. That feels closer yeah. to the Wes Craven interpretation because it, it, it's almost like a, a, a link between him and who he was as a human as opposed mm -hmm. to the dream demon kind of thing. And um, so that and all the stuff with the flashbacks, which I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss later, is really where I think Freddy is scariest, but not on a a primal level more on a oh, holy shit if you think about this this dude was a serial killer and now his family knows that you know that's that's frightening to me mm -hmm. um but no the witch thing isn't particularly funny i mean the dreams the 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 dreams i don't think video game dream doesn't even freaking hold up for me um <laughs> but the Carlos dream, I do feel like that now that you, you talk about it, it does feel kind of tacky and exploitative, but it is well constructed, uh, which mm -hmm. you cannot argue. Um, no, totally. Sorry, that was very long-winded, but uh, that's, that's kind of the deal. I mean, I, I feel yes and no. He's menacing, but he's also too cornball at this point. I mean, to me, this movie, the whole tone of it has a tone of an Irish wake where you go and you kind of like celebrate the dead and you laugh and you sing and you like tell bad jokes and you're celebrating how someone was in life um, as opposed to like being really grim and dour. And to me, like ta what Talalay is, is doing in this movie and I think what DeLuca does um, with his script here is they fully recognize that at this point, like Freddy Krueger is a ridiculous character and that it's also like super ridiculous that a character that was like designed to be this awful child murderer, child rapist has become this pop culture icon. Like they are fully what, what we, the Brits would say are like taking the piss on the character at that point. And like, how did we let it kind of get to this point? And they're fully kind of, winking at the audience going like we know how ridiculous this is as well and i think they understand like you could not make a scary nightmare in elm street anymore based on where the character had gone like wes craven tries with the next movie like he tries to make a scary nightmare in elm street movie and i would rather watch, i would rather watch freddy's dead than 
New mm. Nightmare, given a choice. Um, yeah. No, I'm just wow. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm just, yeah. Right? That's, now, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, New Nightmare. Strong words. New Nightmare right? is an hour and 58 minutes long. There is no oh. need for that movie to be an hour and 50. Get me in and out in 89 minutes, and maybe we have a different story. Oh, God bless you. you know. How many... <laughs> How many there times is... do you need mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp yelling at poor Miku Hughes to not watch that movie on television? Like, it's for, like, the cutoff point before you're like, this is, this is a bit ridiculous now. Yeah, but my parents did that, too. <laughs> and, no, it would, but, uh, it, it, and if I saw them do it four times in a movie, it wouldn't be interesting. It'd be like, oh, right. what's enough, you know? No, but honestly, like, there, there are some of the sillier aspects of Freddy's Dead that I do appreciate. Like, there's that one sequence when John is falling down in the sky, and Freddy's just kind of, like, willing that, that, you know, box of spikes, mm-hmm. in the bed of spikes, oh. and he has this, like, really, like, maniacal, humorous look on his face, like, <laughs> you know, like, I do appreciate that, and I have to giggle when I see that. Mm-hmm. But, like, I feel like, for me personally... I feel like the movie should have either embraced that or embraced the other kind of tone that it does here and there. And I think that's my biggest issue with the film is that it kind of jumps tone a lot. And it, it, it's like, I want to be locked into the humorous aspect of it, or I want to be locked into the more serious aspects of it. Cause I, I feel like it kind of clashes with itself at times. I find that it only gets kind of silly when Freddie comes in when he's mm-hmm. not in it mm-hmm. it has a slightly more somber tone not somber but you know it's a little bit more serious um you know with with the the troubled kids and all that mm-hmm. no i could see that for sure yeah and i like too like i like the direction the movie went in in terms of like what it would be like for a town where every single kid had been like killed off at that point and basically there's this group psychosis with all the adults and it's played i mean like i get what you're saying like we don't need to see roseanne barr and tom arnold in a movie like that definitely like dates the movie it 100 percent. but do you think I'm sorry. I no, was go just going to say, do you think that if it hadn't been Tom and Roseanne, if it had been like just two random character actors who you've never seen before, would it still be kind of funny-ish? I think so. Just if you have characters that can do funny. Um, mm-hmm. I think like what happens when you see like Tom and Roseanne is you're in, in you know, I know I didn't watch this movie until like years after it had come out, but I just remember all like at that, like being aware of all the tabloid reports and how like ridiculous they were as a couple. And this was probably like right around the time, like I think Roseanne did like the national anthem at like a San Diego Padres game and like made a mockery of it. And she was like trash for it. And you're like, Oh, come on. Like it was just, it's one of those things where it does kind of pull you out of it at that point. Um, and to Jerry's point, like, yeah, maybe we don't need, like, all of those cameos in here. I like the Johnny Depp one as a nod back mm-hmm. to the first movie. And also, like, just the idea of Johnny Depp at this point doing, like, an anti-drug commercial when yeah. he's probably, <laughs> like, blowing rails in between takes of it. Um, 
like that to me was pretty great um but the tom and roseanne one i'm like eh, do i it, it that's one where it like pulls me out of the movie a little bit and i'm aware at that point of what i'm watching and they share the screen credit of mr and mrs tom arnold which uh, again holds up to this day it's like watching spider-man and seeing like macy gray perform <laughs> you know? yeah yeah it's like okay i guess i guess we're back there i guess we're in the early <laughs> the early aughts at that point so um yeah i don't know like i know like nathan you have some notes here about like the dare posters on the wall and mm-hmm. um you know i like this idea that like the kids are forgotten about as soon as like they die like no one can really remember who the kids were um and like as someone that works like in an inner city school as a counselor, like, I mean, you see kids go in and out of the system, in and out, and like they're back and forth. And you see cases get screened out where like, hey, these kids probably need some help and services. And what ends up happening is like the system is overloaded. It's like, well, if I give it to these kids, then here are five other kids we think need it just as badly or even more so. And there's only so much of the pie to go around. So you see kids get forgotten about or fall through the cracks and it becomes really, really sad. Well, it's, it's that big thing, you know, and I mean, I was in, you know, elementary school in the nineties and dare, I know dare was around before the nineties, but mm-hmm. there was 80s, that, my friend. Like, well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, and I, but it just, it feels like such a, like that was the big push. Like there were games like Narc and like I said, Robocop 2 was a huge, you know, anti-drug movie. And then you look at these kids and like the, well, the first time you ever see an authority figure in this film, they're like, who's this kid? I don't know. Do we care about him? No, just nope. pick him up and just, it's water through a colander. Give him through the bleeding gonna... hearts. Let the bleeding hearts do the paperwork. And the bleeding mm-hmm. hearts lose control of them. And, you know, you look at the, and, and the thing I've noticed, you look at the, the walls of the shelter and it's peppered with, you know, um, uh, posters talking about the dangers of crack cocaine and dare. And, but it, it really feels like the first big franchise to really address how the, how the, the usage of drugs in horror movies have changed. You're not watching Chuck and Chili smoke pot in Friday the 13th anymore. Now it's people are freebasing and mm-hmm. people are doing harder and harder drugs. And mm-hmm. you have to understand the teens that are seeing these movies are, are the ones who are often the victims of that kind of painful addiction. No. But you Sorry. don't actually <laughs> see anybody doing the harder drugs. You see Spencer smoking a little pot. Right. But right. I mean, I, I feel like because of the nature of of the setting you know in a in a halfway house that's the kind of stuff that would be on there because Mm -hmm. i think the presumption is that the kids who would be there are probably the ones who are doing the harder drugs but i didn't really see that as you know yeah, At and, least the kids we follow. And Carlos right. and um, Tracy come down really hard on, um, they come really hot as soon as like he, let Spencer lights up, like they're like, dude, can you put yeah. that out? Like, what are you doing to yourself? Like, they're not all <laughs> in at that point. So yeah, to your point, like, I feel like Spencer is there because like, 
he didn't want to be a junior accountant in a law firm. So dad sent him to like a drug rehabilitation center, as you do. Um, he smokes pot. Right. Uh, Tracy was there because like of the horrific abuse that she suffered. And also Carlos was there because like his mom abused him. Like I don't necessarily think they were there because they were addicted to anything or were kids that were like juvenile delinquents. Like it feels like the state yeah. stepped in and like put them there to kind of get them psychological help. That ends. I mean, the theme of the series in a lot of ways uh, is, is like each film's kids suffering for the sins of the parents, you know, mm-hmm. like that's a recurring theme. And I do think that that's, a, that's something that's very, very big in mm-hmm. this one too. I mean, like you yeah. said, Spencer sent there by his dad to rehab because he smokes pot I mean, when I was in eighth grade, I got sent to a full-on rehab facility for buying a joint. You know, like, these are parents that don't want to address what's going on with their kids, so they ship them somewhere. So you, you know? were Spencer, and basically. I, <laughs> I'm still Spencer. <laughs> you, were Brecklin, you were little Brecklin Meyer. Um, so I was. There Same we haircut go. and everything. Same haircut and everything. No, but, like, you know, and uh, Nathan's notes, I, I believe, Nathan, you wrote these. I mean, you kind of mentioned that each of the kids are traumatized by the parental figures, yeah. you know, by the way of Freddie. That's something that's been recurring throughout the series. And it, it is an interesting thing in this movie, too. Uh, you know, he plays on those insecurities that they have, the things that happen to them, you know. And I, I love that about this movie. It's just, I, I, like I said, I think it's the tonal shift that, like, mm-hmm. I see great opportunities that could have been executed even better you know those are some interesting like ideas and interesting themes to tackle yeah you know and I, I just, you know what i mean yeah no i definitely hear that and I, I and i get what you're saying where you when you have these really heady potentially heady characters or, or serious characters you kind of want to see them dealt with like the respect and the gravitas that some of the things they've gone through. But at the same time, I could also see where you're coming from. Like, if this is going to be the last one, nobody wants to walk out of the theater depressed. You know what I mean? Like, I I could see that. And I think, like, Tracy's flashback, like, her nightmare sequence with the dad, like, that is one of the truly, like, horrific nightmares of this movie. Like, that one is legit scary, and it has nothing to do with Freddy. Does that make sense? Like, No, totally. Kim. Um... I, like, I, you know, I put on here, it doesn't have the giant set pieces of four or five, but there is like a ton of imagination that goes into this. I don't mind Wicked Witch Freddy just because it is just so bizarre. And like, just because like Robert Englund really goes for it. I mean, like, yeah. you know, he really does seem, he, he kind of like, all right, if I'm, if this is it for me, like I'm going out in style at this point. So I kind of love, and I love that sequence because it goes in so many weird places. Like you have that whole airplane sequence where the woman's like, don't be a pussy. And you're like, what? (laughs) Um, And like, and then she's immediately like jettisoned out of it. Like it's like the old woman in uh, Gremlins, like just shot out. Like, and then you have, and then it goes to like, he's in his bedroom and then it continues. I think that whole sequence is like, and you have like Papa Shea working the cinema booth, you know, like, I love it. Like, I just think that that it's a lot of imagination and it, it cues you in right away. Like, this is the movie you're getting. And I think that- that's- And there's one shot yeah. in that sequence that you're talking about. There's one shot that I still find terrifying. And it's after John goes through 
the kind of little portal thing into the real mm-hmm. world and Freddy's standing there. He has one of the most, one of the just evilest, like just most maniacal looks on his face. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it reminds me every time I see it, that one look, that one shot of Freddy just staring, it feels like something out of Freddy's revenge. Sure. I mean, Englund could still bring it when he needed to. Like, he had this character on lockdown. He just knew what he had to do. But I mm-hmm. love when they return to this sequence later in the movie, and it's like John Doe in his bed, and he's like, I'm not getting out of this bed for anything. No siree. <laughs> and he's like, I fucking hate this house. Like, you know, and it's just like, I love that. I mean, like, they, to me, like, these jokes land so much more than... You know, I was, I like Dream Child. Don't get me wrong. Like, it is a fun movie. I would definitely put it on in the background at a party or a gathering. Like, I don't mean to poop on it. But, like, to me, when you're, like, faster than a thousand bastard maniacs, you're like, what does that even mean? Like, again, like, I don't think bastard maniacs were known for speed. Like, they weren't necessarily, (laughs) you know, they weren't, like, trying out for the four by 400 relay here, you know? Um, to me, like that moment with John Doe, like that's funny to me. Um, the Carlos sequence, like that is very mean spirited, but it's also super imaginative. And like watching like the way it's shot too, where it almost kind of blinks in and out at times and watching like England behind the kid, just like making faces and yelling and you don't hear anything. And the audio, the way that the the sound design plays in that to kind of put you in Carlos's perspective, like it's not necessarily played for scares, but I still find it like there is something really unnerving about that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. I can see that. You know, and then Spencer is just pure fucking goofy, like the whole bouncing up and down, like. And I think like, I love that. Yeah, and I know Talley has said, like in, in interviews years later, she's like, "I should have made it scarier. Like, if I could go back and change anything, like I would have made it scarier than I made it. That's on me. That's my bad. But I still like, I don't know. There's something about the cartoon nature of it that doesn't bother me whatsoever. I think for me, yeah. like, uh, like a big reason is. I just don't want to think of the actress playing Carlos's mother as being that evil because a year earlier I laughed my ass off when she was in ghost being taken advantage of by Whoopi Goldberg, mm-hmm. you know, came in there to talk to her dead husband and, you know, ran out of there. And then a year later, she's, you know, she's fucking with Carlos in his ear. <laughs> oh man and that scene is tainting ghosts for me too like the whole like the q-tip through the whole head thing is just so disgusting (laughs) even though they don't get quite as gory as you would expect it's just so weird i guess the original idea behind this death too was like bob shea suggested that um they have when his head explodes it explodes into like a hundred puzzle pieces and Rachel Talalay had said, like, that was a really good idea. He just happened to suggest it, like, literally five minutes before we were going to shoot the scene. And also, there was no way he was going to give us the money that we needed to actually make that work. So she's like, we kind of did what we did at that point. So Beekler talks, like, I don't know, do you, do, do you guys remember the first box set where it had that bonus disc where you had to, yeah. like, navigate through the asylum to kind of get... There's, like, a lot of really cool behind-the-scenes stuff on um the making of this movie that like um 
Never Sleep Again doesn't cover because it's kind of close. It was all recorded much closer to when um, this movie had come out. And Rachel Talley talks about, like Beekler talks about the cameras she would use where they would have this kind of like bounce to them where she literally had cameras on like bungee cords that could kind of like bounce in time with like what Brecklin Meyer was doing. He's like, I really wanted to see how she was going to pull that off. Like that really blew my mind. Like she was doing these really creative things. And, you know, she has said like what she was most upset about was like having to do it in 3D at the end of it. She's like, what really sucked was like, I'm doing this movie where had this whole tone we're going for. And then all of a sudden, like you literally stop the movie and have like everybody pull out their glasses and put them on. And like, you had to do these things that she wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, so my question for you folks is like Freddie's death in this movie. Does it feel like, a big enough send off or something that you would say, yeah, that's it. Like that is definitely, there's no coming back from this one. Like that's the capper. I like the manner in which he died. I think that it probably could have been extended to a bigger fight. It seemed like it happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. That and I mean, a lot of that fight was kind of, didn't they come up with that the day of because it wasn't fleshed out? I, I think I remember that uh, being part of Never Sleep Again when they kind of mm -hmm. mentioned that fight, like, kind of lacking. I, I, I think for me, I mean, we, could, we kind of saw that, like, we'd seen that before. I mean, you know, Nancy pulling Freddy into the real world in the mm -hmm. first one. I mean, it didn't work. So as an 11-year-old that was obsessed with the series by then, mm -hmm. I was just like, no, he's not dead. You mm -hmm. know, yeah. that and I, I've, I've found that anytime someone makes an, a huge spectacle of something, that's usually like when I'll call bullshit, you know, like they had a fake funeral for Freddie at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, mm -hmm. like, you know, and like you have that interview with Rachel Talalay where, where they ask if he'll ever come back and she's like, no, 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 no. And it's like, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You know, like it, it just seemed like too much of a spectacle for them to just let it go. And then, you know, what did we get? Three years later, he was back. Right. It took Mauer Rooney to kill Freddy Krueger once and for all. And Kyle, it's, you know, it took, took Jackie Earl Haley to put that nail in the coffin, basically. Well, and it's a terrible movie. Yes. I, I, I am so sad we have to end on that movie. Like, it really, it's, oh, it's going to be like. painful. Yeah, it's going to be painful. How about you? We have a guest for that one really quick uh potentially um, okay <laughs> nate how about yourself man where do you think this kind of ranks in the series in terms of like would you after you saw this you'd be like yeah freddy's coming back in a couple years you know i i like the personal aspect of his death i think having his daughter kill him it, in terms of symbolic things it, it's very i think it's very good I agree that the fight is not at all prolonged. It really should be much more vicious. And Freddie, I mean, Freddie should have even gotten in some scrapes on his daughter. Just it, it really just feels like he's now weak and wounded this guy. And I don't know. I think his death in the Dream Master is probably a lot more, yeah, probably the best that he's had. Um, and then Dream Warriors, again, we're going back to the more personal death, mm -hmm. uh, just in terms of how, I don't know. It, but no, here it doesn't really. It yeah. doesn't feel like they were. It's hard to top four or five. Like part four 
he's literally ripped apart by all the souls he's collected. Like they literally burst out of him and rip him from limb to limb. And one of the best effect sequences of the whole series and even part five where like he and Alice become these weird Siamese twins. And then he's absorbed back into poor Amanda Kruger who gets really like the worst fate of anybody in this whole franchise. Like she just gets crapped on. Like it's really bad like what, what she's relegated to. Um, and I like the, as a, as a counselor and therapist, I love Nancy dramatically turning her back on Freddie and like removing all of his power from him. Like it might not be a visually stunning image but it's like a metaphor about overcoming your fears and your anxiety. Like it doesn't get any better than that. Um, so for this one, it was kind of like, and again, I think it's the 3D part of it. Like when his head explodes, it does that weird head coming out of his mouth thing three times. And yeah. then you get these like cartoon dream demons, like straight out of like Critters 2 or Ghoulies. And you know what they look like? Do you remember when CG first came out and you'd go to like a video store yep. and they on the TVs they'd have that VHS reel of just like computer effects to impress you. Uh-huh. That's what the dream demons come off as. Yeah. Like it it comes off like you're playing Hellcab on the PC or like flashback on Sega. Yep. You know like it oh but as they're, bad they're as not I think good. No. As bad as I think like that fight is one thing about the ending of Freddy's Dead that I just love with a passion it kind of goes back on, I can't remember uh, which one of you said it, but how the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you don't have to erase the previous ones. Mm. I love the end credit sequence of Freddy's Dead that shows highlights mm. of the entire series leading up to this one. Because so, yeah. it, shows, it shows such a reverence to everything that came mm. before it. And I do appreciate the hell out of that. Yeah. New Line always appreciated these movies and Bob Shea, all, like they were proud of these movies. Like they were like definitely proud for what they were able to accomplish. And they were always like grateful for like how it allowed them to kind of build the brand. Like they would never felt the need like Paramount did to have to apologize for these movies. And it was never like the Halloween series where like, you know, like John Carpenter created one of the most iconic films and characters of all time. But he's a mercenary. He like will, and I don't say this as a bad thing, like he didn't have any sort of personal attachment to these, to that movie. And he's always been someone where he's like, if you want to re re you know, remake one of my movies, just I'm going to put my hand out, just put a check in it with some zeros at the end of it. And I'm not, and, and, and by the way, that's probably the healthiest attitude a person can possibly have about like their work like good for him for saying that like he wasn't attached to these movies i think like maybe new line was with freddie i think one of my favorite parts of that is you know he writes halloween to you know drunk mm -hmm. to get through it <laughs> knowing that he doesn't want to yeah. and then almost almost immediately there's that interview that you could see on youtube of him just like talking hardcore shit about halloween too mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah no but new line the the difference is this I, I think Paramount, as much money as Friday the 13th made for them, yeah, they were always embarrassed by it. They, mm. they, were, they thought the series was pathetic. Right. New Line completely embraced the house that Freddie built title. Mm. They love it. They love it so much that Bob J tried to inject himself into almost every, every movie. I mean, that's, that's, that's loving 
something right. that you help He's build, like, you know? If, if you need Leather Daddy Shay to, like, come in, if that's all you got for me, like, I'll do it, man. Give me that camera time. My favorite thing with that is, like, when Bob Shay wanted to play uh, Grady's dad in two and remembered Jack Shoulders, like, no, you can't act. Oh. <laughs> I, I think either Leather Daddy Shay or Brian Blessed in Flash Gordon as Hawkman. That's going to be my <laughs> Halloween costume this year. I think I'm actually going to get a picture of Brian Blessed in the Hawkman outfit in a little frame with like a little picture frame that says dad and leave it in my office and see if anybody catches on. I just think that'll be the thing. Nate, you wanted to chime in there as well in the montage. I heard you kick in there for a sec. So please continue my friend. Man, that montage is like one, uh, I mean, it, it just shows how, and I, and I love the Friday the 13th series, but it shows how flat it is ultimately. And with Nightmare on Elm Street, even the worst sequel, well, except for the remake, let's get that out, will always have some of the best visuals mm -hmm. that you'll ever see. And that is like a three and a half minute acid trip at the end of this mm -hmm. movie. And it's yeah. just watching these vibrant reds and greens. It's like a Dario Argento movie exploding, or Suspiria <laughs> exploding at the end of the and, and that song. And it felt like none of the movies got shortchanged either. Like no. they were pulling yeah. from all, and they were even pulling scenes from this one during it. So, I mean, like it really felt like they cared about that. Before we get into the music, I definitely want to get into the music and maybe we'll end on that. What do we think of the flashback sequences in this movie that show like Robert Englund out of the makeup almost being like a really caring dad, terrible husband. Again, we do not endorse spouse murder in this, on this podcast, contrary to popular belief. We'll leave that to the Halloweenies folks. No, I'm kidding. We love Halloweenies. They are a wonderful crew of people. Um, and definitely not child murderers that I can prove. Um, but we absolutely like, I love Robert Englund, like almost being a caring dad in that role. And then you also see things that like shaped Freddie almost as a way to kind of soften him a little bit to the audience too. I don't I, think though, oh, it, I don't think it softens him. I think mm -hmm. that it makes him because, you know, and I've read my fair share of true crime and whatnot. And mm -hmm. you see a lot of examples of um, serial killers who have their own children who are absolutely wonderful parents mm -hmm. And then they go out and do these horrible, despicable things. And I think that kind of shows that there's just a bigger, um, I, I think it's more horrifying to see that on mm -hmm. the one hand, yes, he is really wonderful and sweet and playing with his daughter. And then he can go and just brutally kill his wife, like at the flick of a switch. Yeah. And he makes the excuse like the reason I did this is they took you they took you away from me but mm -hmm. he was already doing these things or was he like because there were like not just the proto gloves in that workroom but wasn't there also like clippings of kids that were missing that were in there okay mm -hmm. yeah. so that doesn't work so that just becomes like a self-reflexive excuse I think yeah. that he only told her that to kind yes. of like butter her up. Mm -hmm. I, I have like a love-hate relationship with that flashback sequence because and on one hand, I think it's so well done and it adds such an interesting look at 
what created Freddy. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, 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 it's one of my favorite sequences in the entire film. The thing that takes me out of it is Alice Cooper. Ooh, okay. Just because, really? no, I, and I, I love Alice Cooper and I, I love him in Prince of Darkness. But for me, like I'm watching this and I'm so invested in this backstory. And then my mind instantly goes, oh, there's Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's no disrespect towards Alice Cooper. It's the fact that I recognize him so much that it takes me out of it. Do you do that in yeah, Prince but- of Darkness? I don't for okay. some weird reason. I don't know. It sounds like a you problem. <laughs> <laughs> right? Not to sound no, not to sound like an asshole, but it kind of no, it is. We encourage it here. We encourage <laughs> because I mean that's one of the things you know in my research for this. I was reading one of the reasons that Cooper wanted to do this role was because he didn't have to come out and be mm-hmm. Alice Cooper in the makeup mm-hmm. and everything. He could just be himself playing a role and I think that I mean I had completely forgotten about his cameo and Mm -hmm. when I saw him it took me a second to like oh right that's Alice Cooper he Mm -hmm. almost looks like Harry Dean Stanton I mean he really like yes like that he does and and he's like you said he's not vamping it up for the role like it's not like him in Wayne's World playing this exaggerated like really (laughs) like the early 90s were like the Alice Cooper years, fam. I mean, forget about Winnie Cooper. It's all about Alice Cooper. <laughs> but do you think, scene. do you think, this is my question, and it is 100% a me thing. Like, I'm not arguing with you. Like, nothing, <laughs> nothing, I, nothing I say is, like, you know, for everyone. It's 100% subjective. But do you, like, it, for me, it's just like, okay, why did they have Alice Cooper in this movie other than the fact of, let's have Alice Cooper in this movie. Because to be honest, as much as I love Prince of Darkness, that's exactly what Carpenter did. Mm-hmm. You know, Alice Cooper's manager produced it. Hey, let's have Alice in this. Yeah. You know? But like for this, it's like, I, I understand that. And I'm not like shitting on his performance, but it's just like, it seems like the only reason he's in there is just to have Alice Cooper in it. Cause it's such a camera sure. driven film. Sure. I get what you're saying. Yeah. I think what I like about that scene, and to me, like Alice Cooper doesn't ha- hold like a near and dear place to my heart. Like I've never really been like he's fine. I can take him or leave him. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not anti Alice Cooper, but he's just not one of the like the artists that I really like hold near and dear to me. So um, I don't really have a problem with him in this role, especially when he's acting and not really playing himself and like what I like about that scene and I don't know if I've ever talked about this in a lot of places but like I lost my dad when I was 19 and like 90% of it was really good that 10% was not good Um, Mm -hmm. and there was like a moment in high school where like I had been wrestling for a couple years and like it basically stopped after that like I you know I definitely got the belt a bunch as a kid um Mm -hmm. and like I made it stop at a certain point and it never happened again and we just moved on from it um so I kind of like that scene of Freddie being like you know how you don't feel fear anymore you don't let it bother you basically like I actually really you know not to get all down here, but like took something from that is, and I know it's not necessarily played for seriousness and you're not supposed to really empathize with Freddie there, but I'm yeah, like, yeah, but you there's found some something real fucking there. power to that overall. So. Yeah, no, totally. You found something yeah. in there. And, and that it's, even though it's not meant to, you know, be played super serious like that. I think that that's the power of horror films in mm-hmm. general. You know, even films that aren't supposed to be like that, we could find parts of ourselves mm-hmm. in them. So, I mean, I appreciate the hell out of that too. Yeah. I almost wish that like more of this movie was those scenes. 
Um, because I think there's this gap, like, you know, we all know like how Freddie was born, like he was the son of a hundred maniacs. Um, and we all know how he died, like he was burned to death by all the parents, but you never really get like that nebulous time where he was really formed. And I think there's like some really a fascinating story to be told there. And I'm not usually a fan of prequels. Like I don't need a prequel that explains, you know, like how Chewbacca and Han Solo came together. Like we got that, you know, I got everything I needed from the Star Wars movies from that. But I think like that's a fascinating character to look at in human form. And I would have been totally down for a movie of like Robert Englund, like not in the makeup but playing mm-hmm. like an adult Freddy Krueger. Does that make sense? Like I would, wouldn't mind seeing more of that explored in an Elm Street movie. That's like what I loved pre- about. Huh? Like a pre-burned, pre- Yeah. Before he died. Kind of exactly. exactly. That's what I loved about that Toby Hooper pilot for Freddy's Nightmares. Mm-hmm. Like if it, if it was played in more of a serious tone. Like yeah, if I, they I had more than like more. $50 to make it. Ex- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So. And, and, you know, there was that whole deal that, I mean, John McNaughton was going to do something, but I think he was going to do something with Freddy as an adult. I mean, that was like a, a rumored project like a yeah. million years ago. I now, don't remember this at all. What was this? Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it was, I never got past anything particular, but I, I remember reading in Fangoria where it was going to be a thing that John McNaughton was going to do. Um, hmm. Now, the one thing I, I like is that the Freddy flashbacks, in particular, seeing him at various stages of his adolescence reminds me a lot of how Stephen King will write like little vignettes of a particularly violent individual. Like the closest thing I can think of is something like Patrick Hoxtetter from It or mm. even Henry Bowers. Just, you know, there's that whole chapter where you go through Patrick Hoxtetter and he's got the same sick impulses that Freddie does. Mm-hmm. And of course, he doesn't, but you could sense that he could go on to be a serial killer in Derry yes. if he hadn't been killed by Pennywise. And that's what happens is Freddy becomes the killer because of this horrible past. Mm-hmm. Agree. Oh, that's such a good, I think that's such an apt comparison right there, the Hawks that are chaptered, and I think that's really wonderful. Also, uh, Which, really quickly, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to cut you off. Uh, Really quickly, the John McNaughton thing, I do remember that. Uh, what it was, was John McNaughton had this idea to tackle Freddy before he was, you know, burned and killed and everything leading to that. And it would end with Freddy basically in hell and this creation of the Freddy we know. And it was ruined by little Nikki that New Line did, <laughs> that a lot of it was in hell. And so New Line was just like, yeah, that didn't make much money. It didn't work. We're going to put the kibosh on even thinking about this. Oh. So Adam Sandler, you, there's a great article, if I remember correctly, on I think Bloody Disgusting it was, that talks about how Adam Sandler basically ruined John McNaughton's chance. Wow. I have to find that later <laughs> on. That makes me so sad. That makes me, <laughs> right. goddamn Adam Sandler ruining yeah. everything. It's like the director of Henry got ruined by Adam Sandler. Oh. <laughs> that 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 literally i have the feels right now <laughs> how sad that makes me all right let's pick things up then and let's um end by maybe talking about this soundtrack and like kind of like right at the kind of like 
birth of the grunge era. You have, you know, part five, there's really not a lot of music to talk about in that movie. And I think like, this is a really great return to form that, you know, part three and four had this like great pop metal and like almost like new wave um, that dominated the soundtrack. And here you get a banger of an opening track with like the Goo Goo Dolls, like that early, you know, pre- um iris pre nick cage and meg ryan um movie with angels yes before you get so that was the google dolls right i'm not i saw i saw city of angels i saw city of angels in the theater really like with the youth group that i was in at the time wow (laughs) it was awful and I remember they were so wrapped up in that Goo Goo Dolls song. And I remember at one point, I even got in trouble with the youth group. Because at one point, I looked at them and were like, what the fuck? Like, Goo Goo Dolls, man. Freddy's dead. Like, screw <laughs> this movie. <laughs> I remember my youth pastor at the time was so mm-hmm. upset with me for saying that. You know, the Goo Goo Dolls track is so good in this movie. Yeah, and I like, you know, how it, when it plays over those opening credits, you have, like, the Nietzsche quote. And then you have, like, welcome to primetime. <laughs> Which, tell, again, cues you into the movie you're going to get. And it's kind of like a little like nod to Rachel Talley because she's directing her first movie. So it's kind of like I almost took it as a little nod to her as well, as silly as that might sound. But like you get the Iggy Pop song over the credits, which even has that line, do you think Freddie's really dead? And it's delivered with such a smirk that, you know, to your point, Jerry, it's like, yeah, come on. We know he's coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you even have that, like, like I said, that like fake funeral and you had all the cast members from the previous movies looking like they were mm-hmm. really at a funeral. Like they, like they paid the respects, but the roses on the coffin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, back to the soundtrack. Like, I think that was <laughs> one of my biggest complaints with five is that you had so much like good music in three and four had like that, that drama Rama song. You had the Tuesday night song that was so good. And then five, like, I don't remember a single part of that movie score or otherwise. Right. Whereas this one comes out and like right from the beginning, you're given a song that just makes the whole like soundtrack memorable. Like it's the whole entire soundtrack's great. Absolutely. And I love like the, the song that plays after Iggy pop song, it's by the junk monkeys, which it does not get more early 90s, late 80s college rock than a band named the Junk Monkeys um, <laughs> called Remember the Night. And it's like this really upbeat, like almost like Pogues-like song. Like it just doesn't have like the Shane McGowan, you know, smoked 800 packs of cigarettes a day tone to his voice. It's really upbeat and it fits like the comedic tone of the movie like really well. And again, I just like considering how how dark the first two movies are it to me it's like bizarre but also kind of wonderful that this is the note like the last thing you're going to hear in any of the elm street movies is this really like happy-go-lucky tune i think it, it also having that quote you know with nightmare on elm street it felt very much more like the literate of the more literate of the franchises you know mm-hmm. just um with the the amazing quote from three and then four and then five kind of just did that weird like, did I fuck up in Rent Retro Diaries? And then part six <laughs> feels like a return to that. And there is, I mean, just, I can't see the New Line Cinema logo forming together without hearing I'm Awake Now. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it's so ingrained in my head. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I could not find, cause I was trying to put together a playlist of this album and I could not find the um, Iggy pop song anywhere on Spotify. Mm. Just so you know, apropos <laughs> of nothing, just like that's all I had. That's as interesting as that story gets. All right. <laughs> what are we missing here? What, what else is there to talk about with this movie or are we ready to lay it to rest? good it's up to you guys yeah the, the only yeah. thing i wanted to comment on was was at the very beginning when jerry was talking about the opening nightmare um i the, the thing that, it, that i thought was really funny is is when john is falling down that hill it just reminded me of the scene <laughs> from hot rod he just keeps <laughs> falling down the hill um and then you know you talk about his menacing face right you know he and that is such a good like growly freddy line he, you know now be a good little doggy and go and then he does the knife mm-hmm. that is great. the kind of freddy this movie needed mm-hmm. yeah. anything Sorry. That reminds... Sorry track, but no man no. anything that reminds us of hot rod is a good thing like that's always no, <laughs> right all bad all right so i think we've i think we can put the Freddy's dead to rest at that point. And, uh, you know, I think it was a really fun discussion. You know, I think there are some things we've agreed to disagree on, but I think as always, <laughs> we do so in a kind and supportive way. Um, but remember, fire Jerry. Nope, just kidding, just kidding. Um, still need to get those shirts. Get rid of Definitely, Jerry. that's, oh my God, <laughs> screw that guy. Best review we've ever gotten. Screw that dude if he's still listening. <laughs> um, he can go to hell. Um, <laughs> So, um, Nathan, what, tell us a little bit about your writing. Like, what do you have coming up? What are you working on right now and for who? Uh, so for Grumpire, I have uh, an article on Club Dread, uh, the Broken Lizard movie that mm. came out in like 2004. Um, and I just, I honestly think that it didn't get enough respect as one of the better slasher spoofs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, out, out of all the big ones that we've had. And um, so I wrote a, a huge article on it and uh, managed to contact almost all of the members of Broken Lizard to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that that's going to be a big piece that I've got coming out. I think it should be coming out very soon. And, um, and then this month and every month, I write a column called Triggered, which is basically we take all the slasher movie villains and I tried to dissect the, the why behind what they did mm-hmm. uh, using, you know, using armchair psychology and talk about Mrs. Voorhees, talk about the killer from the Prowler prom night. And this month I did Flatter University. Um, so that's kind of the fun stuff Excellent. that I've got cooking. Excellent. So with Club Dread, do you think that might've been a matter of like, the slasher, the teen slasher craze by like 2000 had pretty much died out. And maybe that movie was just like a few years too late, especially considering you had like spoofs like Scary Twitch. God, to call Scary Movie as a comedy is to shit on comedy. Um, but do you think like it was just like a few years too late and also considering there are other kind of spoofs out? Um, yeah, that could be one of it is that I think that Club Dread operated on a more intelligent level mm-hmm. than what Scary Movie gave and right. audiences. We need junk food sometimes. And 
you know, it, it took itself seriously enough as a horror movie, but had enough comedy. And I think that that's always a bad combination uh, mm -hmm. for films. And it also came out the same weekend as Passion of the Christ. So that, that kind of, you know, tilted in favor of a, a bloodier movie, watching a man mm -hmm. die. So. And Elise, how did um, the world of it come to be? Um, actually, a friend of mine recommended me for it. Um, she, Tara Bennett, she writes for Abrams and a bunch of other places and they needed somebody and she said, you need somebody who knows horror, I'm, I've got your girl. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really just like that. And, and inside of the book, like, do you go into the background of like the coming together of the movie or do you like do more character explorations? Um, it's mostly about kind of the making of. So mm -hmm. there's a ton. It's about 50% stills from the movies and 50% um, behind the scenes photos and um, mm -hmm. and promo art. Um, concept art that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of stories in there just from like you know talking about how they filmed the the beetle scene in the in the chinese restaurant mm -hmm. or um you know talking about what it was like working with the kids and that kind of thing because that kind of thing always fascinates me about mm -hmm. how children in horror films handle all of that mm -hmm. so um a lot of good back behind the scenes stuff yeah what was the general vibe from you got from the kids that worked in the movie because they're a little bit older so they're probably watching these movies by now uh yeah well by the time i interviewed them because i actually didn't interview them for the book i mm -hmm. interviewed them for the junkets afterwards mm -hmm. for various um outlets mm -hmm. and um they were all just you know typical teenage kids you know they were they were jokey and they were silly and um they all just really seemed to be bfs so yeah. it was cute. There's one of those kids. There's really quickly. There's one of those kids. Uh, my daughter went through some really horrific things at her other parents' house that I had to go to court for. And she was obsessed with that movie because it helped her deal with a lot of trauma that she went through. And one of those kids went out of his way to send her so much stuff and just telling her to hang in there. Aww. So like, I love those movies, but I think I will forever be on like Jack Dylan Grazer's like team for that because he helped my daughter out so much. That's very that cool. Well, and at least, like, uh, I, I don't know if I've read this correctly, but, like, are you working on or still working on or going to be working on an X-Files book as well? No. Um, okay. I am, I have a book that I'm putting together with uh, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and um, it's a, it's called Creepy Bitches, and it's, <laughs> It's women in horror writing essays about horror. And so I wrote an essay about the X-Files. Okay, excellent. Because cool. that is my current obsession. Mm -hmm. And well, not that current, but you know, off and on for the last 27 years. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, totally. So I wrote an essay about um, the Scully effect and, and 
how the new revival season has made a lot of critics go back and kind of restudy her her place in the history of mm-hmm. feminism and stuff like that so it's it's a little bit scathing I think because okay. a lot of people were trying to say oh well look at all of this stuff happened and I'm like no no, no you you can't just take one big thing and make it into anyways it will hopefully be out by the end of the year I don't mm-hmm. know exactly when it's coming out um, okay and it's called but, creepy bitches yes we'll definitely be on the lookout <laughs> for that when that comes out yeah so to both nathan and elise where can we find you on social media and like if people want to follow your work um i'm on twitter just at elise wax super super easy um that's really the only social media i mm-hmm. do okay and nathan yourself uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, MamMamMars85, um, and I don't know. That's it. That's pretty much it, too. There really. you go. <laughs> All right. Keep it easy. So we thank both of you guys for joining us. We're really happy you're able to come on tonight and definitely come back on in the future. Yeah. So Okay. Thanks for oh, having absolutely. us. Oh, it's been a fun talk. Um, <laughs> and Jerry, what do you have coming up, man? Like you have, you actually didn't one of your scores just drop today? Like were you? Oh, uh, uh, the first film that I was lucky enough to score, uh, BJ Colangelo's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Uh, she released online free today. So I would oh. definitely recommend doing that. Like, yeah, it was the first thing that I would, ever was asked to score. And I'm incredibly proud of that film and how it came out. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Uh, I have this really awesome interview with Mick Garris, I think hitting online this mm-hmm. week. Uh, other than that, just same old grind. Okay. Same old, same old, same old grind. And same I know old. you have to go in a few minutes to, for an interview. So we'll be quick tonight as we make our, our Patreon pitch. So for me, like at the time you listen to this, the, um, next episode of psychoanalysis is up over on the consequence of sound podcast network jen laura and i do a double feature where we look at um 1985's fright night and 1989's the burbs through the lens of like suburban paranoia and we like kind of dive deep into some of the ways that like suburban layouts really can drive paranoia how that can lead to a lot of conspiracy theories um and basically, it's an excuse to talk about Chris Sarandon wearing a sweater for three hours. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it comes up a lot in the course of the episode. Uh, but it was a really fun listen. And I believe we've got a pretty big announcement for psychoanalysis soon in terms of like some places we're going to be appearing in the fall and some stuff we're doing, um, but that's another show, but that's here and there is where you're going to find my stuff. You can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian, and you can follow our Twitter account over at pod and pendulum. Um, Big thanks to our listeners. Like it's the 17th of September and we are in a little bit and we've um, already meet, I've already met like how many downloads we had last September with like two weeks ago. And like the show keeps growing and it keeps growing pretty quick. So we hope we can do some stuff to keep that going and reward our listeners. Um, I can't thank you enough for like the reviews and spreading the word and also to our patrons um, who help fund this thing and make it uh, hopefully as good 
right? It is good, right? As it is. So, Jerry, what do our, our patrons get when they when they subscribe? <laughs> well, there's different tiers. I always forget the price points because I'm an awful person. Two, five, uh, and ten. Two, five, two, five and ten. And ten. Uh, you know, we, we try to give stuff to everyone. Like like we say every, every week, uh, the show will always be free. But for the patrons, we did bonus episodes, giveaways, tons of stuff. Blog posts. Mike wrote a really good one a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, commentaries. We try to get, we try to make it worth your while. I mean, like, what's the point of paying for something just for us to say, hey, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, we could say that on the show. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, uh, we definitely recommend that if you feel inclined to do so. If not, Mike will probably call you a coward in a minute. I will. <laughs> I absolutely will. So this but month, yes, we appreciate our, it. our bonus episode this month is going to be on 976 Evil. Uh, we thought we would keep it in the Robert Englund family. And then next month, I think we're going to do uh, the haunting, uh, the House at Haunted Hill, 1999's House at Haunted Hill, uh, for a fun kind of Halloween movie. Speaking of like Halloween movies, October is coming up, and I've got like a fun little project for our listeners. So I've created this master list of like 31 different subgenres. Uh, one for each day of the month. It's a Google calendar that I'll post in the notes. You can go into it and suggest different titles. Um, and just, I'm going to pick something to watch every day. Our listeners can definitely find some stuff there as well. So we have a day that is like, you know, what's your price? Like list of Vincent Price movie that I should watch that night. Uh, we have like found footage for categories, horror documentaries, um, you know, for the Halloween night, I always do a double feature. So give me your ideal double feature to watch on Halloween night. We have sections where like, I would like, like, you know, give me a, a um, horror movie directed by a member of the LGBT plus community. Give me a uh, horror movie directed by a person of color. You know, we want to like in different parts of the world. So definitely trying to expand the horizons of what we're watching here. In October, we are going to take a break from the Elm Street series, whether or not we're finished. And we are going to do a little theme. Like we're going to just basically do one-off movies set in and around uh, the holiday. It's something kind of fun to do for that month. So stay tuned for that. Um, And again, go to patreon.com, part of the pendulum. Two bucks gets you all our bonus episodes. And um, I think they're well worth it, you cheap sons of bitches. So, all right. On that note, we are out of here. We will be back next week, which I think is going to be basically an episode where I dig my heels in the hand sand act like a toddler and absolutely refuse to listen to reason when everyone else tells me how brilliant new nightmare is and i'm like it's not um until then everyone have a great week